Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Judah and Noah. Welcome to episode four of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. We'd like to thank those of you who listened to our first three episodes and for your very astute criticisms and suggestions. So we're going to try and tighten things up here a bit. I'm going to edit out some of our fumbling around and each episode will have a brief intro like this one to provide an overview of what you're getting yourself into. So here we go. In this episode, we begin by discussing equilibrium and death. We then distinguish between the knowable and the unknowable and speculate about the various reasons we make up so much stuff about the latter. We then accidentally light something on fire, discuss why the brain lies to us, imagine how this capacity came into being, and get drawn back into a bunch of other cosmic speculation about the heart's feelings using the overlay of the mind's thoughts. Enjoy the silence. Okay. I could just talk right into it like this. Yeah, that works great. <laughs> Are we equally loud now? Possibly so. Oh, look at that. Are, yeah. All right. We're both. <laughs> We've achieved equilibrium. <laughs> is, that, is that a real state? No. I don't that's think so. That's a state of death, right? I, I don't even know if that's equilibrium. Hmm. Well, is there a state of death? That's the great question. I don't think so. I personally don't believe there is such a thing as death. I mean, there is the shedding of the physical body. Right. So uh, we could just call that death. We could. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, you have to be so practical? <laughs> but are we going somewhere? I, I guess know. is the question. Yeah. I mean, I have intimations that we do. That I we, know. That we're going somewhere. That's the whole thing. Like everything gets broken down to, well, there's what we could know. Yeah. And that ain't much. We've already established that. But then... There seem to be suggestions that there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's actually going on, but we don't know. We don't know. And there's a lot of, you know, passed down wisdom that says there is something else. Right. From so many cultures, almost every culture says there's something else. But it, it could be easily explained by saying, well, we just want there to be something that's else. True. That's true. It's totally subjective. Right? And we're totally terrified of it. It's the thing we're avoiding. It's well, like what you culture, said. I would say our culture. Well, is. you said nutrition, right? <laughs> nutrition is resistance against is resist, death. resistance against death. Yeah, yeah. So you know, from the physical, you know, materialist point of view, would be preserve at all costs, basically, right? Let's yeah, keep this thing going, point, right? Right. And we want to avoid its termination. Mm-hmm. So that seems like a good motivation for making up all kinds of shit. That's true. That's and true. I'm not saying that because I doubt that there is something else. Right. I'm just saying, like, well, I'm playing the devil's advocate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've had enough conversations with you to know where you stand. Yeah, pretty much. You say something, yeah. I'll say, well. I know. I did know. you ever consider? Let's flip that over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. God, I love that. <laughs> God, how important is that? Oh, my God. Thank you, Albright. <sighs> Albright. Super cool dude, Hudson, New York. Uh huh. He told that to me once. I never forget it. Mm. Mm. A man of wisdom. Wow. 
good stuff. Yeah, I think we're really quick to take up other people's ideas without testing them for ourselves. And, and hence, most of our thoughts actually don't come from our own thinking. Well, maybe that also is because we're afraid of death. Right. You know, it's a lot easier to follow the program that seems to be, you know, the one going, right? The best, mm-hmm. the best deal available, the one that everyone else is believing, you know, the one that seems to have the most power behind it. They get a lot of lights on it. It's got a good presentation, you know, right. great score. Mm-hmm. Good special effects. Bites. Special effects are rocking. <laughs> so it seems, yeah. seems like that's the thing got, to believe. It's got a few thousand shares and likes to it. You know, <laughs> power of the people. Right. Next thing you know, that's your truth. Right. Right. And why not? I mean, on a certain level, that's a reasonable strategy, particularly if you're thinking of preserving the self, right? Mm -hmm. So preserving the the individual self, the body. It's like, okay, well, the body, preserving the body, I may as well hook up with all the other bodies that are kind of wanting to preserve themselves too, and they seem to be doing a good job. They got a great budget for that thing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, there's some wisdom in that, Right. right? But there's no freedom in that. Well, there's no freedom for the cells in the body either, mm. right? And they banded together in order to make a good go of it also. Right, right. So, you know, if your whole thing is uh, preserving the body, maybe freedom is not going to be one of the main issues. That's why, you know, freedom is kind of hard. It's a slippery thing to actually find. Yeah. Like, who's really free? You know, some people have made the case that actually we're just like slaves like in the olden days. It's just we call it something else. Right. You know, we have basically handed our lives over to various things. So how how free are we really, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Rudolf Steiner makes a statement. He says, when you will your thinking, you find freedom. Hmm. Well, that would be kind of within the individual eye going your own way, right? So you're willing your thinking independently from whatever it is that you were indoctrinated into. Right. And so you're kind of diving off the deep end, you know? It's actually a, a scary thing. Like, so the truth will set you free. It's one of those phrases that I've always mulled over because, okay, well, if what we've been indoctrinated into isn't the truth, mm-hmm. right, and we're finding sort of safety within it, right, then freedom would be um, not in that safe position anymore and probably a far greater chance of just meeting our maker (laughs) (laughs) earlier than otherwise. So that whole, that, that, you know, whenever I hear that phrase, you know, the truth will set you free and there's people spouting all kinds of supposed truths. I was just going to go ahead and finish. Which some of which are pretty incredible and intense and outrageous and going against the grain of what, you know, various segments of society believe is the case, you know, so there's, you can pretty much find anything out there right now. Right. You know, when you say, um, you know, the truth will set you free, right? That's, yeah. Um, what I witness is a lot of institutions, specifically, I'll, I'll say Christian institutions mm. that, uh, you know, talk about the truth setting you free and there is nothing more binding than the truth that they are dispensing. There's well, you know, there's nothing that robs you of your freedom more than the particular brand of truth 
that they're dispensing. Okay, if we're going to be really specific here, there are definitely other things that rob you of your freedom far more. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So let's... let's Yes, and and you can see what indoctrination does to people, though, because what happens is they begin to... They lose the capacity to literally think. All they can do is spout what a book says or spout what their, um, their leader has said. And they literally can't think of anything outside of that whatsoever. Well, let's let's just for the sake of argument say you have the case of someone whose carnal nature has gotten the better of them, mm-hmm. right? Or who the sensual enjoyment of things has led them a hedonist, okay? okay? Uh-huh. And they just cannot get control over themselves, right? They are basically a slave to their passions, a slave mm-hmm. to their mm-hmm. addictions, right? Mm-hmm. So... For a person like that, freedom is finding structure, finding someone who will tell you what to do. Don't do right. that anymore. Right. You know? Right. And and so it's like freedom is a relative thing in many respects. For for someone in that position, you know, many of us do self-destructive things. We do things that we really I think most we everyone has some sort of self-destructive. It does seem to be a part of the human uh, condition yeah. that we are there's a part of us that just wants to throw caution to the wind and take the quickest path to hell we could find. <laughs> As the Grateful Dead say, going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. You enjoy it until you get there, you know? Then, That's the right. thing. You know, exactly. at a certain point, the ride's over. And then you, you know, wake up and you go, Whoa. There's a reason why the dead were a touring band, mm-hmm. you know? If, if they had spent more time in the studio, they would have realized the hell that they had created. But as long as they just kept moving from town to town, it was like, ah, yeah, the wreckage. We'll just uh, catch you in the next town. It's, you know, it's all great until it isn't. <laughs> and then... You know, there is a lot of wreckage from that from that whole scene. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I I totally have seen it. I've met a few people who just like never recovered from it. Yeah. You know? Yep. So okay, we've got and I think actually there are a fair number of people in the church now who used to be, you know, deadheads or one of those kinds of like just nonstop party animals. So once we come to the agreement that we don't know much, right? Then in order to have any kind of a structure whatsoever, we're going to make up a bunch of stuff. And so you could call that a lie if you mm-hmm. want, you know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. An, another deeper truth of that is that you need stories in order to have a structure. If we're going to be as socially organized animals we are, then we need to have vivid stories that function in a way that keep people together. And so what if they're lies? Because mm-hmm. that's necessary. It's like there's basically a built-in lie here, you know, which is that we could be free <laughs> and live. Right. Right, but the body is basically an enslavement. So let's get over it and not worry. Let's just decide. Okay, what is the thing that we're going to place our faith in? Right, we have a choice about that. Mm. We don't have a choice as long as we're a living being about like being totally free. You know, mm-hmm. that's not what's going on here. So we're going to have to make a decision about what we're going to believe. Mm-hmm. And faith is the substance of all of that. So people have faith in a given story. Whatever it is, whether that narrative is science or Christianity or any of the other great religions or philosophy, right, or nihilism. Mm-hmm. I mean, nihilism is basically a form of faith. It's like an anti-faith, but nevertheless, if that's it's what you believe in, in it's a belief system. Right. 
you know? Right. So one way or another, we're going to end, our, end up committing ourselves to a pack of lies. It's just, it's built, it's baked into the cake. Well, the, yeah, the brain is, is specifically hardwired, actually, to do that. Tell so. me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> that looks like something's on fire. <laughs> we do have it. It's like, this. is this conversation smoking or is the wood stove on fire? <laughs> so uh, we've just discovered uh, um, that the wood stove was uh, about to light a um, pot holder across the, that was on the handle on fire. So we're just taking care of that right now. Where were we? Uh, somewhere with freedom. Freedom in the brain. Oh, structures in the brain that, that make up stories about... Um, that that are designed, yeah, they're designed to tell us lies about how things are, how things were. So yeah, is that like a, an actual scientifically studied phenomena? Yeah, it actually is. I was just listening. I actually sent you an email today. Um, I saw with, that with a link to uh, this ten minute talk. Where I didn't get around to it. It was only ten minutes. I should have done that. Yeah, I've not done my homework. It's okay. It wasn't it wasn't homework for this episode for this. <laughs> so we're all good. Oh. So, can, what can you tell me about that? So, is it the uh, hippocampus, which is in charge of short-term and long-term memory, and then our orbitofrontal cortex? Um, what is the third structure? Why is it eluding me? But there's a third structure, and they're all designed to uh, tell you know make shit up, basically. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, as, uh, as, we were experiencing you know information from our senses. Mm-hmm. So we've got to do something with it. We have, to, we have to make sense of it somehow. And that's one of the things that the hippocampus is involved with. Not only is the hippocampus involved with short-term and long-term memory, but it's also involved with uh, desi- uh, giving things meaning. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Making connections. <laughs> Making connections. Exactly. So let's imagine that we were a being that didn't have anyone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Right, they're sort of like the first one sensing stuff, brand new information coming in, senses are getting messages, you got to do something with it. Right. So now that we've gone through the eons of developing that capacity as a biosphere, you could say that the planet has kind of done that work, we've got to the point where we've got vast and detailed records of a bunch of stuff that people figured out mm. and that have been observed going on in nature. So we've got this reservoir of things that we can refer to to kind of give us a jump start in making sense out of things. That's basically the learning phase, the play phase, all that kind of stuff. Now we have all this documentation and, and that kind of uh, archiving. But now it's got to the point where it's like, wow, we sure have accumulated a lot of information and a lot of it is contradictory and what are we to make of all this and the deeper we probe into things the more confusing they get so stop making sense you know what are you know we're kind of back to zero in a certain sense well the deeper we go down reductivism science the more we lose sight of the whole picture so the more we discover parts and lose the whole the less we actually know well it's weird because parts and whole you know we think of parts as being the smaller things that are together, mm-hmm. making up a larger whole. <clears throat> but 
we have the same problem as we go out into larger and larger organizations. You know, we kind of reach the same impenetrable, what the hell is this kind of feeling, you know? Right. So, so it's like an assembly of silence moment, you know? It really is, because the whole doesn't exist without the parts, and the parts can't exist without the whole. Right. You, you can't just go down the rabbit hole of the parts forever without seeing the connection between the whole. So, yeah, this is... Uh, um, in a certain sense, there is no difference between the parts and the whole. Like one way I've been thinking about that is with respect to the consciousness in the body. So if we can accept the idea that a cell is a conscious thing, mm-hmm. you know, so it has the capacity to sense and respond at the very least. Absolutely, it does. So we've got a body filled with cells, each of which have this capacity to sense and respond. They probably have a sense of being as well on some basic level. You know, they're kind of the, they're what we're made up of, right? Well, yeah, they have the ability to perceive their environment via their cell membranes so and the then thing- make decisions to move towards or away from things. They will move towards nutrients and away from toxins. Cells will do that. Exactly. So they are clearly sentient. Yes. They're able to sense and respond. And we are a sensing and responding consciousness that's different from them. We don't have the same consciousness. We don't know what it feels like to be a cell in the body. And they don't know what we are, which is the thing that's organizing all of them, in essence. But neither of us would exist without the other. Right. Yet they do hold memory. Sure. They hold cellular memory of our emotional life, our physical life, so many things. But do they know that that's the emotion that I felt when – uh, when my first girlfriend broke up with me. Well, th- right? there's the thing, but there's something deep in us that does. There but, is, but do the cells know it? I don't, it, it's hard to say because, I mean, I can't say a, a definitive yes or no on that, but we do know that 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 the those feelings carry forward, those, those old traumas and wounds carry forward into our adult age if we don't do anything about them. And a trigger... So you have a partner 25 years later, totally different person. They do the same thing that the person who broke your heart when you're 15 does. And you have the same emotional experience. It triggers the same thoughts, feelings, and it's all so familiar. And it actually becomes patterned. It becomes patterned behavior. So, yeah, I think you're right that the the cells have a kind of memory um, and that – much in the same way that when we suffer a physical wound, emotional wounds are also kind of held in the body. So you may have like sort of the equivalent of scar tissue on some mm-hmm. level or another. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we have simpatico with the states of the cells in our body. If our cells are feeling like shit, we feel like shit, right. basically. Right. And if they're feeling good, then we feel good. And within uh, the vast number of cells in our body, all of our experiences have had some kind of an impact. So somewhere when we have an experience, the cells are getting that information and storing it, and it's going to come up again under certain circumstances. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because you want familiarity with circumstances when they come up again. So you want to be able to know like, oh, I've been through this before. I know what to do. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it can also be kind of crippling if the responses that you developed early on aren't the best ones. Right. 
Right. And so I think particularly in mediated environments, which is where we've spent much of our time, and, you know, we are kind of relatively vulnerable as creatures for a long time. We have a long adolescence and that sort of thing. So it takes us a while to get out into the world, and particularly now because the world is also kind of mediated from the natural world, it would make sense that we'd be more likely to develop less than ideal strategies for dealing with situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we address that? Right? I mean, that's like where we really go into learning to understand what we're feeling, Mm. where its origin has come from, being able to see the pattern in the behavior and in the feeling, and to really trace that trauma back. And in my opinion, work with somebody who's really skilled at helping guide you through your emotional life, your thought life, and help to start rebuilding new neural pathways. Aspects of the brain that are are designed to protect us um, from danger, like our amygdala, these are really fast responding, fast acting parts of the brain where they're cued, they're totally cued for perceiving tone, movements, anything that's a potential threat to our being, and they will react quickly. Mm. The aspect of the brain, like the hippocampus and the orbitofrontal cortex, which is there really to like kind of scan and go, no, everything's okay. Everything's okay. You, 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 you're sensing a trigger, but everything's okay. Those parts of the brain respond much slower. Mm. So it's how do we create some sort of harmony in our nervous system? Because if our nervous system is keyed up, like specifically our autonomic nervous system, if our sympathetic system is really keyed up and we have low parasympathetic tone, which parasympathetic is rest, digest, repair, respond, right? So it's a more relaxed, calm, in control state. If there's an imbalance there, then any little perceived threat you're gonna, and especially if you've got old traumas, triggers, and patterns that you've created from family dynamics and relationship dynamics, that you haven't addressed and and worked through, then you become a victim, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. air quotes there, Mm -hmm. um, to your pattern behavior, which you will eventually start creating the experiences to affirm that pattern in you. Or to give you another opportunity to resolve it. Or give yourself an opportunity to resolve it if you are able to, but many times what will happen is we will literally create the situation that wounded us as a way to prove that that's our existence, that's our reality. So it's a identification with the wound. Exactly. And, and you know, that, that I think, let me poke around at that yeah, stuff yeah. for a little sure. while because I think we got to turn those over a little bit. Uh, do we need an assembly of silence moment for that? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, we're okay. going to hit one now. Okay. <laughs> Feeling. Um, first of all, the idea of the sympathetic and parasympathetic balancing each other is almost impossible because they're tuned so differently. Like the, the sympathetic has that emergency reaction mode. And you could say, like, basically, its clock is running faster than the parasynthetic. It's it's more like divisions of time. And when it's, as soon as it gets triggered, it's like, bang, right? Yeah. And so the parasympathetic response is always going to be behind the curve there, right? And it's all a matter of the kind, and you were talking about kind of retraining the neural network so that you have a way of coping with things that might otherwise send you into orbit, Right. right? So 
it seems to me that the training of those synaptic ch- chains, the connectivity, is the main thing to work on. That the examination of the pathology doesn't do much except reinforce it. So when we're trying to understand like what the fuck it was that happened to us when we were young and why it is that we're so screwed up, all the energy getting put into that excavation is just reinforcing the uh, historicity of the memory that's being held in the cells. And what we really want to do is to figure out what are the new synaptic patterns of behavior that we want to cultivate and just choose the, trust, the fresh alternative, like Pema Chodron talks about, mm-hmm. like leaning into the difficulty yep. and on the basis of knowledge, you know, ideally, experientially, you go, okay, I know how to release this thought pattern, right? I've learned to step back and observe when my mind is running wild, when I get triggered by something, and I know that I can step back and go, oh, my mind is doing that again, and then just kind of observe that and not get wrapped up in the drama. That's a technique. It's a new synaptic pathway that's a beautiful skill for disengaging yourself from emergency mode. And it takes practice. Yes. So it means that we have to be in situations, real-life situations, to practice it. In my opinion, I think it's really important to find somebody who's skilled in work like this that can take you into artificial situations to help you with that repatterning so that as you experience the real life situations, you have some practice in doing it. But another thing, and another thing what I wanna say is when you're talking about the autonomic nervous system with the sympathetic being really keyed up, there is a way to bring that into more balance. And the way to do it is by creating something called resilience. And resilience is our ability to prepare for, respond to, and recover from stress, challenge, and adversity. And the way to develop resilience is actually through creating a coherent state, which we were talking about at one point. So when you start to work with breath, breathing techniques, and cultivating renewing feelings like gratitude and empathy and compassion and care and appreciation, joy. If you can learn to actually cultivate the felt sense of those feelings, of those emotions in your heart and sustain that feeling, keep it going and, and, and tie it to breath, what that will do is that will actually put the, 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 the heart the mind, the emotions in a coherent state. It's interesting. So, And it charges your inner battery. So you can look at resilience as an inner battery and that you can can charge it. And the more resilience you have, then those stressful situations don't, you've got kind of a buffer zone around you. So it doesn't impact you quite as quickly or your capacity to recover from it is faster or to catch yourself in the middle of it. Right is faster, but it's because it's like a battery. If we're not doing that on a regular basis, if we're not making that a practice, that battery can drain. So and it's very similar to the resistance training that we were talking about in the episode where we were discussing nutrition and challenging the body in terms of assimilating the various uh, nutrients in food, for example. Right. In this case, we're talking about basically training yourself to deal with various types of hardship, like emotional hardship is kind of the focus of what we're talking about. This is, this is really typical of us because you're coming from the heart point of view. <laughs> 
and I'm going to come from the mind point of view now. So I heard someone say something like, the function of philosophy is to train you for hard times. Mm. And so the idea of forming a kind of coherence, you know, being able to have a sense of agreement within the self so that the ideas make sense and you know where you are. There's like a sense of orientation irrespective of what comes up. So someone throws something at you, you know what to do with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's another way of finding that kind of an anchor, cool. you know, is through a deep contemplation of the philosophical questions that arise, you know, instead mm-hmm. of sloughing them off. Both approaches, I think, are really valid. Ideally, we do them both. Right. They I mean, in, th- that they integrate, and then we restore heart-mind, that ideal that's part of the Chinese medicine, uh, Chinese philosophy background, and I think is also part, really, of the Western tradition as well. Because you have that kind of intuition aspect of things that comes into play in a lot of the Western tradition. Absolutely. And so the heart-mind combination or having them in sync with each other, having them in a coherent state is so crucial because the heart is a feeling organ. It's a, it's a, it's a per- organ of perception for feelings. Mm-hmm. So it, it's going to let us know what we're really feeling. Right, so I can go. Am I what? What am I feeling right now? So I just had a uh, a really intense experience with somebody. Am I feeling, um, you know, discouraged, disheartened? Am I feeling sad? Am I feeling angry? Am I feeling what? What am I really feeling? And the heart's our guide in that because we can tune into like what is that feel felt experience I'm having right now, and. And our emotion and emotions are like waves. They're going to roll in. They're going to roll out. But you know, just like waves, some are bigger than others. And sometimes the sea is a little stormier than other times, right? Mm-hmm. So it could carry us away. And this is where having uh, the capacity for clear thinking, or the ability to control our thinking, or or fine tune our thinking, and work with our feelings, so that I look at thinking as the rudder for our emotional life. So we can have yeah. feelings. Mm-hmm. And if we can be in tune with the heart, the heart can guide us into really knowing what exactly I am feeling right now. And the mind, if it's strong enough, can be like a rudder for the emotions and prevent us from acting on what we're feeling and allow us to think clearly through them. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that I'm always somewhat skeptical of the idea that we could ever really know exactly what we're feeling. I, I think that feelings basically are gradations of good and bad. Sometimes it gets extremely like, I know a lot of people will say things like, anger is just a cover for uh, sadness, something mm. along those lines, mm. you know, or depression is just a cover for anger, you know. And and so it's like there's these various layers and um, – Sometimes, at least for myself, I find it difficult to figure out precisely what it's about. You know, like it's hard to excavate and go, well, was I really angry about that? Or was I really sad about it? Or was it just upsetting, you know? And then why? You know, sometimes you react to things and you definitely feel upset or or even happy sometimes and you don't know why. And so... Hmm. 
I, I get a little confused in, in the realm of the feeling, which is probably why I kind of focus on the mind side of it. You know? <laughs> well, most of us aren't aware of the full range of emotions that we have. I would, I would encourage people to look up the work of Marshall Rosenberg in nonviolent communication and look at the list of feelings that he's created through huh. that work. I'll write it down right now. I think, I think it's fantastic, and, and I use it in my own practice, and I, I use it for myself. I just used it today for myself of like, what am I really feeling? right now and and he, he and it, there's there's yes there's gradations of good and bad there's a certain set of positive feelings and there's a certain set of negative feelings and mm-hmm. within those negative feelings we might have uh, feelings that fall under like the fear or anger category feelings that fall under like the mm, disheartened category feelings that fall under the uh, confused uh, category so you know there's there's a variety of emotions that most of us aren't aware that we even have because we're not educated in our emotions well to make we're it not, even more complicated sometimes these feelings are not necessarily clearly positive or negative like some people love to be angry yeah you know well, I, some people are melancholic and so they, they may not right. necessarily be depressed but they may not necessarily be upbeat and positive either right. Right. And so it's and for some people, you know, uh, upbeat and positive might feel hollow or fake. Mm-hmm. And so a certain degree of dourness might feel real and there's a certain degree of pleasure in that. Sometimes feelings are not clearly defined, you know, so positive, negative, it gets all confusing, you know. Mm-hmm. You can be in a situation where everything seems like it should be just awesome. Like you're having a great meal and it is a great meal, but it sucks for whatever reason. You know, there's just so much complexity in the emotional realm that on a certain level, my sense is that it's almost impossible to really tease it out and make sense of it. Until you start working with it. And allowing yourself well, to feel it and have an embodied experience of those feelings and really like allow yourself to feel what you're feeling without trying to, to label it or put meaning on it. Right. Like why? Which we could say, I mean, it's one of the principles that Marshall Rosenberg talks about is that feelings are usually an expression of a met or an unmet need. Huh. So positive feelings are usually coming from some sort of, you know, uh, culmination of met needs, like maybe the need to be seen, the need to be heard, uh, the need for uh, respect and consideration and trust or safety, stability, all these different human needs that we have. Uh-huh. And so if those needs are being met, then you're, you're going to have more positive emotional experiences. Uh, but if you... Uh, if your sense of stability isn't being met, if your need for security isn't being met, if your need for being seen and heard isn't being met, then you're going to have more negative associated emotions uh, around that. Here's the thing is most of us um, don't know that we have needs. And if and we might be aware of a few of our needs, but we're not aware of the, the wide range of human needs that we have. And Well, some of them probably are more like wants, right? They're- well, I would encourage you to look at his work. He went and, and interviewed cultures all around the world huh. and asked them, uh, what, what, what are your needs as a people? And he gathered all 
this information. And based on what all these different cultures around the world told him, he created this list of universal human needs. He found huh. all the, the the parallels, you know, all the ones, the overlappers, you huh. know. But certainly uh, emotional states will vary widely depending on things that aren't necessarily needs. So sometimes yeah, people's wants, wants can get, also get plunge people into absolutely. all kinds of emotional sure. stuff. So the want for more money, the want for fame, the want, whatever it might be, right? Mm -hmm. And so now we're, you know, absolutely. But what I, I just want to say this is that most of us walking around are completely unaware of the full spectrum of feelings that we experience as a human being and our full spectrum of needs. Mm -hmm. So we're totally uneducated in things that make us incredibly dynamic human beings. Well, and so here's the question that I have is, once you're actually experiencing these emotions, why do we need to put labels on them? It's sort of like the, the question that I have about categorization of the various ephemeral realms, you know, like trying to break it down into certain, you know, schematics. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I understand that there are a lot of social norms that suppress people's emotional states. And I think there's some good reasons why that happens. So for instance, we're a species that's spent some serious time in uh, protracted conflicts where you don't have time to feel, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a warrior, if you're a soldier on the battlefield, you know, you could spend many years in a state where it's just like what you want and what you need are not part of the picture here, you know? So long history of that kind of stuff going on. And of course, the deprivations that happen in various societies, whole civilizations are dealing with long periods of time of just barely scraping through, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So that I think explains to a large extent why there is a history of suppressed emotional states. And I think that it would be very difficult to survive those conditions if you didn't suppress those emotional states. So we got to give that it's due as well. You Absolutely. Know? But let's say like, okay, for the sake of everyone around us, let's try to feel what these feelings are. Mm -hmm. If you're able to do that, then what's the additional benefit of trying to like figure out, oh, well, this, is, this one's related to that. Like as long as it comes through and you're experiencing it and it's just, you know, it's not being pushed down. If you're feeling it, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that enough in the in the emotional realm? Because basically, like once you put it into categories, you're putting the the cognitive overlay on top of the emotional. There's one other thing I just want to throw into this, which is that there's a, there's an argument in Chinese medicine about the role of the emotions, and there's a, a kind of a traditional Chinese medicine way of looking at things, not TCM, but like the old way of looking at emotional states as fundamentally being imbalances. So you could say that strong emotions come about as a result of a fundamental imbalance, probably from protracted states of having to suppress emotion. In the ideal of that way of thinking, you wouldn't have particularly strong emotions <laughs> ever. <laughs> and there's some arguments now in, in the field as I understand it. It's not my area of expertise, but what I've heard now there are a lot of practitioners who say, well, that was an old way of looking at it and, and what have you. But I think there's a lot of insight hmm. to that way of looking at it. Hmm. 
I think that why do we why would we want to put the cognitive overlay on some on our emotions? Mm. I, what comes to mind for me is for clarity. If I know what I'm feeling, then I'm not left in a confused world of just feeling. Well, but I, I think maybe that's a confusion of the feeling realm. That the emotional realm is the realm of feeling, and that the knowing of it is an attempt to dissect something that can't be put into parts because basically a feeling is a whole. And so when we try to, you know, I mean, of course, there are positive and negative feelings and some of them drive us to a certain type of uh, energy that's different from the other energies that you would experience in an emotional realm. But my sense of it is that what we're really getting are messages, right? It's, and the message is the experience. I don't know that there's necessarily a cognitive level that needs to kind of go, okay, I'm labeling this experience this and I'm labeling that experience that and now I'm going to like kind of do an operation on it. Mm. It's more just like let the, let the body experience these things and you, you'll go through it mm-hmm. and it's going to teach you something just having gone through it. Right. And I think that's valid also. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's had some deep emotional trauma. The last thing you might want to do is try and think your way through that and just allow the emotions to come out. Right. Although you could also make the case, making your case, I think, that with someone with deep emotional trauma, the last thing you'd want to do is to just uncork that bottle without there being some kind of a cognitive overlay. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, I can see a, both sides of the issue there. Right, and I think this is, we're coming around to something here that, <laughs> that, that this is what I think most spiritually advanced individuals will talk about, and that is equanimity of emotions. Is can we get to know, can we really get to know our thought, an emotional life intimately enough that we can, over time and practice, quiet it and bring some sort of equanimity to our emotional life so that we're not riding highs and lows. Well, I think on the strictest level, like if I think about the kinds of techniques that are suggested by uh, the Buddhists and the Taoists, all you need to do is to practice the detachment from thought. Mm. So when thought objects arise and you neutralize them, the situation is neutralized. You know, it's kind of the bottom line. Now the question of course is, is that an effective technique under all circumstances? So if you're sitting in a monastery, (laughs) it's pretty hard. It's like, you know, it's painful, it's uh, frustrating, but it's a peaceful situation. You're not being shot at. No one is like hammering you emotionally. No one is like putting you down. So, well, maybe they'd be putting you down. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. <laughs> you know. Don't know what really goes on. I think that is part of the, the Zen yeah. training is like they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll slap you around a bit and see whether you're for real. That is kind of a, a, a one, one sword cutting through the whole thing, you know, one nice slice. Like if you can really get control over the interpretation of the whole thing, then it doesn't matter what all that stuff is, right. you know? I like the elegance of that, you know, but I don't know whether it's a real realistic way of doing it. I've found it to be, you know, and again, so far, no one has been shooting at me while I'm trying to do this. So 
it's hard for me to say how well it would work under the worst of circumstances. But given the ordinary ups and downs of life, which can be kind of rocky at times, it seems to work pretty well. Maybe not Maybe I'm not as practiced as I should be. Mm-hmm. I still definitely experience some negative stuff, but that's not necessarily going to be any different even if you're practicing this well because it's, what do they say, like before enlightenment, chop, chop wood, wood, carry, carry water, water, right? Yeah. So afterwards, chop, chop wood, wood, carry water. water. <laughs> so it's the same shit. It's just a matter of, you know, your way of interpreting it, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes we're going to feel like crap, no matter how perfectly we play everything and no matter how right. enlightened we are. Yeah, it depends on our st- our state at the time. I, I know for me personally that I struggle with certain patterns uh, and triggers in my life. And it doesn't matter how much I've worked on them, they still come back to revisit me. And some days I'm stronger than others mm-hmm. and I can resist the pattern or I can really uh, breathe and not react to it. And then other days, if if I'm, you know, if my nervous system is feeling a little fried or I'm feeling exhausted and my resources, my internal resources are low, then it's completely overwhelming. Completely overwhelming. In some and ways, I think it's actually worse to be tired than it is to be shot at. Yeah. When it comes to this kind of thing, it's like if you're tired, the smallest thing can just yeah. send you into orbit. Yeah. And I mean, I just went through it the other day. And so, it was just a really great study of like, oh my God, I am so deep in my emotions and my pattern thinking right now, and I cannot extract myself out of this. Like I have all the tools, I have all the resources, I, I teach this stuff, hmm. and I cannot do it for myself right now. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And that's, and that's life. That's, <laughs> and that's life, right? As you said earlier, life is relentless. And... and um, you know, it's not going to wait for me to be in a better place. I think I've heard, you know, uh, like Pema Chodron in particular comes to mind. I, I think I remember hearing her speaking about her losing the way, you know, and it just seems like that even those who are really deeply steeped in some of these practices have the same potential for falling from grace as all of us. This leads, I think, towards like an overall view where we're talking about the nature of humanity and these ideals that we develop, you know? And I think it's pretty clear that the nature of humanity has some pretty terrible weaknesses and cruelties and horror to it. Um, And that the ideals that we generate are, in many respects, unrealistic, but without them, there would be nothing but the horror of our worst aspects of being. So There'd be nothing to strive for. So by having these beautiful things to strive for, we're able to temper the worst aspects of our being. And that's the best we've got. That's why we like talking about this. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel, visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. 
We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at silentassembly. And if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash silentassembly. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.